Good morning, church. It's a pleasure to have each and every one of you with us this morning, and uh, I ask that you take God's Word in your hands as we come to the second uh, uh, to last uh, week in our series that we've entitled Joseph, Seeing the Good and God's Detours. We'll be finishing uh, that series up next week as we bring all of it together and, uh, and bring this uh, time uh, of looking at Joseph's life uh, to a close. And we've been going through a roller coaster of Joseph's life, the ups and downs. And yet what we've learned throughout all the events of Joseph's life is that God is, is actively involved in not only his life, but our lives as well. What we've learned is that God is uniquely and, and actively involved in the minute details of everyday life, and he's with us in the good, he's with us in the bad, he's with us even in the ugly times uh, when we may feel all alone and isolated. And we're learning uh, through this story what the Apostle Paul would say uh, many years later to to the uh, church in Rome, that God works all things out for the good. And so we want to see how God's going to do that. And sometimes we've got to look from his perspective and not our own to recognize that the difficult times of life, God is using and orchestrating a beautiful end in the process. And we see that in the life of Joseph over and over again. Well, as we look today, we're going to be in chapters 47 of Genesis, 47, 48, 49, and 50. And i got to use my time well so that we can get through all of this. And like I told the earlier service, you should be done somewhere around 5 o'clock. So just uh, we'll, we'll order food in and we'll uh, knock this thing out real quick. But, but God has a word to say to us today as we take the spotlight for another week again. We did this a couple of weeks ago off of Joseph and onto his father, Jacob. And we do that like TV shows do every once in a while in a long season of TV shows. It's not always about the main character. Sometimes the storyline goes to one of the supporting cast members where we get to know a little about their life. And today we look at the last days of Jacob, Joseph's dad. And it's an important message. It's a message that I've never preached before, really preached any message like this before in almost my 15 years of pastoring here at Village Bible Church. And so I am really excited about what God has to speak to us, even though it is a very delicate and somewhat somber occasion that we find ourselves reading about. Today we're going to ask your question, what will be your, what will be in your eulogy? What will be in your eulogy. And I want us to start in Genesis chapter 47 as we go through these handful of chapters and try to understand all that's transpiring. And I want to do so by starting in Genesis 47 at the end of the chapter, starting at verse 27. If you don't have a Bible with with you this morning, grab that pew Bible and you can find our passage on page 41. Page 41 in the pew Bible. Here's what uh, Genesis 47, starting at verse 27, we'll go to the beginning of chapter 48. It says, Thus Israel, that is Jacob, settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to, to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, that is Joseph, I will do as you have said. And Jacob said, swear to me. And Joseph swore to him. Then Jacob bowed himself upon the head of his bed. After this, 
Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, Your son uh, Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, Let's stop right there and ask for the Lord's blessing on our time. Father God, we come before you, and we come to a very sensitive subject matter this morning, one that we who are living don't like to talk about. Uh, Lord, we are reminded in our, in our scriptures today of the importance of how we die and how we die well according to your scriptures. Lord, uh, impress upon us the things that maybe we push away because we're uneasy about them, to take them and listen to what your word says, to follow the model of this great man, Jacob, who did things well. And Lord, I pray that we would do things days, even in the twilight of our days, so that in, in all that we say and do, that our last days may be our best days. Father, I pray that would be true of me, and I pray that for each of my listeners this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. About a year ago, almost to the day, I got a call that one of my longtime customers named Jim had passed away. I'd done a lot of catering for Jim over the years. I'd catered for his daughter's uh, wedding. I had catered uh, his retirement party, a couple of anniversary parties along the way. And Jim was the type of guy that would just throw parties for party's sake, right? He loved having parties and enjoying uh, the festivities of all his neighbors and friends. And all of his parties were always big to-dos. They were always filled with hundreds of people. And, and I would say uh, there, were, there are moments or events as a caterer that some of the events you don't want to be a part of at all. Jim's parties, you wanted to stay and hang out for a while. It was just an all-American country barbecue that everybody seemingly would enjoy. And so Jim passes away, and I'm told that just like all his other parties, it's going to be a party, and there's going to be lots of people. They had planned for about 500 people to be in attendance. They, they uh, uh, got a huge auditorium in the town where Jim lived, and, and we gathered in, and I remember it was a Jim party. As soon as I walked in, you don't see this at many funeral luncheons. There were uh, kegs of beer ready to go on tap for everybody to enjoy. And uh, the crowd was kind of more raucous, if you will, uh, than any funeral luncheon I had ever been a part of. But before the meal, as we're preparing, and as people were gathering, uh, there was this eerie sense that something had changed. Because over the PA system, we started hearing Jim's voice. And then we looked on the screens that they had set up for the occasion, and there's Jim. And Jim's talking to us. And, and that was kind of weird for a moment. It got even weirder as I'm preparing one of the food lines that I hear, hey, you're going to enjoy a great meal from Tim Bidall and 5B's Catering. Tim, cook those pork chops well. And it's like, a dead man just told me to cook pork chops well. Something's wrong with that. And then he kept going and he kept highlighting different people in the crowd. And here was the crazy thing. He would say, and Charlie, you're out there. Go ahead, Charlie, stand up. And Charlie stood up. And I'm like, this dead guy is summoning lots of people to do things. I'm like, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen. But this was Jim. This is how he operated. He was larger than life. And for seven minutes, he had, with rapt attention, everybody in the room. Never had anybody heard a dead man speaking before, especially at his own funeral. And he told jokes. And, and he did all manner of things, reminding us of the big heart that Jim had. He was a big farmer, and he had even a bigger heart, and that was just being seen in the video that was before us. But then the conversation got more serious, and Jim began to talk about two of his friends, two of his friends that had quarreled for a long time. 
And he spoke to them, and he had one, one of them stand up, and he said to the other one, I want you to stand up. And he said, All the, for the last couple of years of my life, I've tried to get you guys together. Would you make a dying man's last wish that you guys would make right and that you would be friends again? It was a powerful moment. And then he had his children stand up. And he gave in front of all of these 500 people words, lasting words, take care of your mom. Be good to one another. Have lots of parties. Don't stop doing what we did as a family just because I'm gone. I want you to enjoy life and live it to the fullest. You see, what Jim was doing was he was taking upon himself, and you could say, well, that's crazy. Well, that was Jim, and it seemed okay after you got over the eeriness of him being dead and talking to you, that it was somewhat natural. Here was a man giving his final directions, his final words to the people that he had come to love so very much. And they were words of fun, they were words of encouragement, and they were even words of admonition. And they were words that told us a little bit about who Jim was. And that's a common practice around the time of funerals. Today we're going to learn about the life and death of Jacob. And in the twilight of his life, what transpired and what happened as he prepared himself to die. You see, in funerals, as I've performed funerals as a pastor as well, we always have what is called a eulogy. Whether it's myself, the presiding pastor, or one of the loved ones uh, is asked to come up and to read, in essence, a snapshot of one's life. Like when they were born, where they were born, to whom they were born, what siblings did they have, what was their early life like, where maybe they went to school or college, what was their occupation, who did they get married to, who were their children, they would go on, what were some of their accomplishments? What were, what were they best known for? What would be the thing that they would be long remembered for? We see those in eulogies. Of course, a part of that as we send it out to the general public is an obituary. A reminder, number one, that someone has died, and number two, that this someone was someone of significance and someone that will be missed by those who are closest to them. This morning, as I do each and every time I come to a funeral, as I preside over them, I always ask the question, what will people say of me when I am in the casket? What will people say when I am the, if you will, center of that funeral attention? What will they say of you? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever taken time and, and asked the question, what will my loved ones say? What will my friends say on that day? What might my enemies say? Will they speak of me as being the great businessman or businesswoman? Will they say that I kept the cleanest of homes? Will they talk about my sports accolades and, and my classroom accomplishments? Will they find out that uh, will learn that I was not just mean to one person but mean to a whole lot of people? That I was hard to live with? What will you be remembered for? Will it be good? Will it be bad? Or will it be downright ugly? I've done a funeral for an ugly individual. I don't mean ugly in the face, but ugly in the sense that they lived a pretty mean life. And those are hard funerals. You always want to say something nice about the dead, and when there's not much nice to say, it can be very complicated. But what will people say about you? My hope and my prayer for my own life and for you as you're listening is that what they would say is, number one, they were a people who loved those closest to them that they served and honored the family and the friends, that they were pillars within the community, 
that the neighbors and friends, those that they came into constant contact with, would sit there and say, they were a good, that was a good person. They lived life well. That they were studious and, and, and dependent, uh, or dependable, if you will, uh, in their workplaces and in the work environment. But all of that is set aside that my greatest hope would not be that what I did from the pulpit or what I did in the church or what I did in a catering company would be known, but that everything would revolve around the idea that this man, Tim Bidall, who has now departed from us, loved the Lord Jesus with all his heart. And that he sought to serve the Lord Jesus with all his heart. And that whether he was in the workplace or in the church or in the community or at the ball game, wherever he found himself, that, that love of Jesus exuded from every part of his being. And that because he loved the Lord Jesus, he started well and he finished well and he did his best every single day. And I hope that would be what your eulogy would be like. I hope that that's what your obituary would be. But sadly, many of us are ill-prepared for the time of our dying. Now, I'm not saying that you've got to do what Jim did and put a whole presentation together that was unique to Jim. But one of the things that I know to be true is that you cannot wait to prepare for dying when you're dying, but it should begin while you're living. In fact, every day of our lives, we should become a little more prepared for our death date. From the moment we come out of the womb, the closer we get is to our death date. And we need to recognize that this morning. So let me ask you the uncomfortable question. What will be in your eulogy? What will the world talk about when talking about you? How will they define or describe your life? Well, today we come to a passage that is a passage about the death of a great man, Jacob, the patriarch. A man that would be known throughout all generations. Millennia now have passed and we still know of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he would pass away. He would pass away at 147 years of age. So if you feel like you're old, how do you feel as Jacob does? That's an old man. And the Bible here, I want to be very, very specific. The Bible doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the final days of one's life. In fact, the New Testament doesn't describe anybody's death outside of Christ himself, really, and the, the preparation of his body and the burial and all of that. And so here in the Old Testament, we get this picture of what death and dying looks like, and there are three things this morning that I want to draw from it. My first point will be my longest, my second point will be a little shorter, and then my third point will be very quick. You're going to have some smoke coming from your pens as you write, okay? So you'll recognize that I'm not keeping you here too long. So the first thing I want you to recognize this morning is that death and dying are going to happen. As we come to this text, we are reminded that even though there are millennia that separate us in time, and there's half a planet that separates us from Egypt and Canaan, that it is quite amazing that death and dying was the same then as it is now. We get older, and as we get older, our bodies begin to weaken. And as our bodies begin to weaken, we become more frail and more sick. As we become more frail and sick, our children and our grandchildren and their friends and family gather around us and check in on us. At some point, because of some illness or some frailty, 
our life finally leaves us. But before it does, we do everything in our power to make sure everything is in its set place, that we've had those final conversations, that we've done all that we need to to make sure our estate and our, and our life is in order. We tell those that are closest to us that we love them. We speak words to them of great importance on things we want them to do after we are gone. And then we pass. And our family and friends gather together. They prepare the body. There's a showing where there's a period of time for those who know us to come and mourn our passing. And then there's a burial. What is true in 21st century Chicagoland, Illinois, uh, America, was true in the ancient world of Canaan and Egypt. Nothing is different. Nothing has changed. And that makes this passage all the more applicable to us. And here's the number one truth that I want you to know. Death and dying are going to happen. I learned this truth that I cannot uh, presume that tomorrow can happen. I learned this at 14 years of age. You know this to be true. My brother passed away in a car accident at the ripe old age of not 147, but 16. And I've come to recognize, and it's been ingrained in my being, that I cannot assume that I will have a whole bunch of tomorrows in this world. That people all the time die at all manner of ages. Now I hope and I pray that it's when I'm 147. God help you people from around till 147. But I would hope that would be the case, that I would see my children's children and grandchildren. And I would want to, to be a part of that. And what an opportunity is. But I cannot presume that that could happen. Jesus told us that no man can presume upon tomorrow because no man knows what a day might bring. So the most foolish thing that a Christ follower can do is assume that they're going to have a whole bunch of tomorrows and be ill-prepared then for the day of their death. No one usually is prepared. Even with Jacob, he did not know the hour or time of his passing. None of us do. And even though he had opportunity to prepare, doesn't mean that we will. So a couple of things we need to recognize as we look. Jacob knew these truths, and he capitalized on them before we were too late. And, and I pray we would do the same. In those times of death and dying, number one, we call on family. We call on family. We are told Jason, Joseph, Joseph receives word that his father's sick. Nothing uncommon for a man who's 147 years of age. He's been 17 years in the land of Egypt, okay? And what great 17 years those have been. Jacob learned early on that his son of 17 years had died. It wouldn't be until jo- Joseph was 40 that Jacob would find out that he's alive, in fact, thriving, prospering in Egypt as prime minister. And so he's reunited at about 40 years of age, Joseph is. Jacob's an aged man. Remember, Joseph's asking, one of the first questions he asks, is dad alive? Because my dad's old and he could have died by now. But he finds out his father's alive. And last week we learned about this great reunion that takes place and this wonderful embrace and this wonderful year uh, reunion uh, that takes place between father and son. But now we've seen 17 years have passed. And Joseph goes, and I don't know if it's for a birthday party or anniversary or maybe a graduation, something that brought the family together. And someone said, hey, Joseph, your dad wants to talk to you. And in chapter 47, we see the conversation. And the conversation goes like this. Jacob says, listen, you're my son, and I'm going to ask something of you. I'm going to ask you to swear by it. 
And there's this whole covenantal swear by the under part of my thigh, uh, which really significant, was significant. It meant that you're, you're going to do this. If you say you're going to do it in their culture, that means you're going to, to do it. And he says, listen, son, I want you to bury me in Egypt. Or bury me not in Egypt, but in Canaan. I want you to bury me in my homeland. Would you testify to that? Would you promise to do that? And Joseph says, yes, I'll do that. And then we learn that the next thing that happens after this promise and covenants made between son and father, kind of the last will and testament of an old man, we learn that Joseph learns that Jacob is sick. This is another occasion. And Jacob is so sick that he is about to die. And Joseph then, in chapter 48, takes his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and he brings them to be with his grandfather, their grandfather, his dad. And they spend some time together. I want you to notice that in those moments, those moments are special times. They're times that we shouldn't push away. They're times that we shouldn't insulate our children from. But that we should engage in the death and dying of our older family members and embrace it as a good and as a testimony of lives lived well. Now I want you to notice a couple things about this. Notice, first of all, that Joseph is a busy man. He's the prime minister of Egypt. And notice that when he hears on a couple different occasions, your dad needs you, he stops what he's doing, and his priority becomes his father. He doesn't send a courier and say, you know what, dad? We're at the end of the quarter, and these sales are really important, or I'm in the middle of this project. I'll I'll see you in a couple weeks. Dad says, I'm sick. I'm with my son. And the son drops what he's doing, and he heads off, and he runs to his father to be with him. I want to remind you this morning of the priority that family is. Work should never trump the priority of family. When family calls upon you, as a Christ follower, we are being shown a wonderful model that our priority, our greater priority over work is family. And we should do all that we can to drop what we need to, take the vacation time we need to, and to do it well. The second thing I want you to notice is nowhere in the text does it say, oh, my old man father's sick again. Every week it's another thing. I am just so burdened having to go out to Goshen, leaving my work, leaving my family, taking undue vacation time, and go and see it. Man, this is such a burden on me. You don't see any of that. He loves his father. He wants to be with his father. Far too many of us have seen the care and the ministry of our aging parents or our grandparents as a burden or a load that we don't want to bear. Might I remind you that you're where you're at today, and I'm where I'm at today, because they said the load and the burden that you were wasn't too large to bear. And so it is a part of that circle of life that we are called into, that we are cared for as children, so that when we get older, we can care for those that are, that are dying. We should not wait for the government to carry that load for us, but we should strive and we should seek to serve. And I get and I understand how difficult this can be. I remember watching firsthand with the death of my grandmother in her final days, how hard it was as her mind was beginning to leave her and the hard conversations that my mom and dad and we as grandsons had to have with her. Excuse me, when we had to reduce her responsibilities, when we had to watch as, as she became forgetful, as we had to make decisions for her, those weren't easy. 
But never did I hear my mom, who was an only child, say, why am I burdened with this? This is too hard. I get it's hard. But God wants you to honor those who have come before you. So do it well for your good and his glory. Joseph was living up to the example of the responsibility for caring and ministering to older parents. And we should as well. Notice when he gets to his father in the second time after his father's ill, he brings his sons. And and notice what Jacob talks about in verses 3 through 16. He says, and Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan. And he blessed me. And he said to me, behold, I'll make you a fruitful and multiply you. And I'll make you a great company of people. And will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And then he says, you two boys here, your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, uh, even though they were born in Egypt, I want to bring them into my covenantal family to be with me. I'm adopting them into my family. Later on in the text, in chapter, uh, chapter 48, verse 15, it says, and he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my father's Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who had been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and on the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. What does Jacob talk about? I want you to notice in the final moments of Jacob's life, he doesn't talk about football, he doesn't talk about the affairs of life. He doesn't talk about how great it was to live in Egypt or how awesome it was, per se, to have such wonderful children and grandchildren. He doesn't talk about politics. He talks about his relationship with God, his faith. Write that down. His faith. Look how good my God has been to me. My God has lived with me through the ups and downs, and he has been faithful to see me from point A to point B. He has loved me. He has shown mercy. He has shown grace to me all of this time. And I am a living testimony to the goodness and greatness of the God whom I serve, the God whom my father served, the God whom my grandfather served. And as they hear of God, God proved himself to be faithful every single day day. And here's the reminder for you kids. Joseph, God will honor you. And God will bless you if you honor and bless the Lord. And grandchildren, Ephraim and Manasseh, when you honor God and you obey him, God will bless you all the days of your life. So Jacob just cannot say enough about his relationship with God. And it's a question that as fathers and as grandfathers we have to ask this morning, what have our children and grandchildren heard about our God from our own lips? Oh, that's grandma's job. That's mom's job. No, this isn't a grandma. This isn't a mom. This is a grandfather and a father who says the most important thing in my life is my relationship with God. I have a wonderful father. And I know that my dad was a great dad. And what I'm learning is, don't tell him I said this, but my dad is an even greater grandpa. Okay? He's great. I, I, I love watching my father. He will sit down in a room and his grandchildren of all ages will rally up to around him. 
And what he will do is he'll ask how they're doing. And my father has these massive hands, and I watched my father with his massive hands just caress the backs of the heads of his little granddaughters and his grandsons. And he pours out his love on them. I love you. And he uses names in his native tongue of Assyrian. I love you, Buni and, and Buna and Brata. And he just loves on them. And you sit there and go, my goodness, oh, a grandfather loves his children. And he's always got more money than he ever had with me. <laughs> he's always more lenient with them than he is with me. But here, every time my father rallies the kids around him, he always speaks about his relationship with Jesus. He always tells them how good God has been to him, how good God has been to our family. And how important it is from the youngest, and he'll say it in the most gentle and kind of ways to my little niece, um, Kitia, love Jesus. Jesus loves you. Jesus cares about you. He tells his older grandsons, make wise decisions. Because unwise decisions bring uh, unwise consequences. And don't do evil things because that's unbecoming of a family that loves God and unbecoming of children who say they love God. And he brings them back to the importance of God's faithfulness and our call to obedience. My dad is not a perfect man, but like Jacob, he's a wonderful model to follow. Be people of faith. Don't let your children only hear about politics from your mouth. Don't let them hear at how bad things are going at church. Don't let them hear about you striving with that, that, that uh, idiot grandmother that they have. Don't let them hear such garbage. Don't let them see you striving. Don't let them see you become callous and crotchety. My father, bless his heart, he's nearing 70 years of age, came to me a couple of years ago and he said, son, I'm seeing a tendency in my life. And I said, what's that, dad? He says, I'm getting cold. He said, the things that I say that come out of my mouth, remember at 60, the filter leaves, right? Some of you know that, what I'm talking about. And he says, I'm being cold with people. My heart doesn't want to do that. But as I get older, I get more angry. I become more bitter. I don't like the way things I see are happening. And I start talking about the good old days and the good old kids and all of that. And he said, son, will you hold me accountable? I want to finish strong. I want my heart to be sensitive and warm to my children and my grandchildren. And if you see me growing cold, you tell me to cut it out. I said, dad, it's going to be hard. You'll spank me. <laughs> but he said he wouldn't and that, that we'd be okay. But I love that. I love that my father, nearing 70, has the wherewithal to say, I want to finish well. I want to do it right. And so he's casting on for a family, another generation, the importance of faith. That's what Jacob does, and that's what we're called to do as well. Notice next comes death and the funeral. We see in chapter 50, so fast forward for a moment. We'll get back to uh, chapter uh, 48 and 49. We get to chapter 50, and in chapter 50, we, I'm sorry, this is chapter 49, end of 49, verse 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel, we'll get back to that. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said, Let, I am being gathered to my people, bury me uh, with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite. And he tells them exactly where he wants them 
to be buried. And then it says in verse 33, when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Let's stop there for a moment. Jacob dies. Let's take pause and, and remember a great man who has passed, a great man who had walked with God, who had wrestled with God, who had massive uh, engagement with the God of the universe. He has taken up his feet and he has breathed his last. Now we're told, and I'll get to this in a moment, that Joseph fell on his face, chapter, one of verse, or chapter 50, verse 1. He fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And then notice what happens, just like what happens today. And the sons who are alive, commanded, Joseph commands his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel, Jacob. Forty days were required for the embalming, for that was what was required. And the Egyptians wept for 70 days. And when the weeping for him was over, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, if it would find favor in your eyes, please let me speak in the ear of Pharaoh. And he says, listen, my father has died, and the last wish that my father had was to be taken back to his homeland to be buried where his forefathers have been buried. Will you give me time off of work to allow me to go bury my father? Pharaoh says in that text, go, and I'm going to send a great entourage with you. Now, I want to stop there for a moment because we all recognize and know that when people die, there's a funeral. And a couple things that I want to draw out, some implications, if you will, with regards to the funeral, first of all, is that Joseph, the living, did everything in their power to respect the last wishes of the dying. And I think that's an important thing for us to know. Because when Jacob dies, Joseph could have said, you know what, dad's dead. He's not going to know where we buried him. He's dead. So I'll just bury him here because I'm a busy man. And it's way too expensive, and it's way too difficult to get uh, from here to Canaan, find the cave where grandma and grandpa are located, and where great grandma, or yeah, grandma and grandpa, and great grandma and great grandpa are buried. I'd rather just do it here. In fact, and quite honestly, I can do it here a whole lot better than I can do it there. But that's not what Joseph does. Joseph says, "My father, whom I love, has asked for a specific." request. He doesn't want to be buried here. This isn't his land. He wants to be taken, as difficult as that process will be, he wants to be taken and be buried where he's, been at, where he's asked to be buried. And Joseph does it. It's a reminder, a practical reminder, that we as Christ followers should do everything in our power to live up to the last wishes of the dying loved one. I counseled the family not too long ago uh, some nominal attenders of a village. The mom was more regular than the family was. And the mom called. She was an aged woman. And she was dying. She was in an elderly care facility. And she said, Pastor Tim, Pastor Tim, I'm so scared. I'm so, uh, she's all worked up. And I said, what's going on? She says, I'm dying. You know that. And we had visited a couple times. And, and I knew her days were, were being numbered. And she said, I've asked my children that when I die, not to cremate me. You see, I believe that God wants my body to remain the body. And by the way, that's a personal preference. That's, the Lord doesn't speak emphatically on whether the body needs to be kept in place or cremated. That's a different sermon for a different time. But she said, this is my personal conviction. I said, well, what's wrong? She said, my kids say it's too expensive. 
and they said that they're going to just go ahead and cremate me. Would you talk to them? Would you tell them that I, I, I am scared that I'm sinning against my God, that, that I want my body to be kept and I'll give as much money as I can. We're saying, no, it's expensive, but, but there's money there for it and they're, they're able to do that. And I had to go have a conversation and I got to be honest with you, I was pretty mad in that conversation because instead of caring about their mom's needs, they kept talking about the inconvenience, the money. And I want us to be very careful. And I, again, I don't want to be harsh on people uh, overly, but, but I want us to really recognize the importance of caring and respecting and honoring the life of those who have been lived well around us that we would do so even in their death. And that they would make a wise decision and a right decision. That money means nothing unless we can honor our parents and our grandparents in a way that is pleasing. Now let me tell you one very easy way that you can do this. No parent wants to die and know that their children are going to fight over their possessions. And so what I would hope and pray is that whenever we find ourselves in those money situations, you know, those situations where we think we, we deserve something, when that inheritance takes place, you want to know one way you can honor God and honor others is be a peacemaker in those situations, not looking to get a piece of the property. Be careful. Honor. I can't tell you how many people have the biggest family arguments after the death of a family member. It's terrible. That's not what the family wants. Let me, I, the last thing I would want anybody to do is fight over my stuff. And if I knew that was going to happen, I'd get a big box and put all my stuff in it and say, I'm taking it with me. Because I don't want people fighting over it. This is stupid. God wants us to honor those who go before us. So jo- Joseph does that. He does exactly what his father asks. And what a great testimony with regards to that. Number two, notice that when he says, I want to be buried in Canaan instead of Egypt, there's a reason for it. And the reason for it is that, that what, what he has told us Jacob has in the last part of his life, when he was speaking with Pharaoh a couple chapters ago, he said, listen, I'm going to live in tents because I'm sojourning in your land. Now, he sojourned for 17 years. Build a house and, and, and build a burial plot where he was going to be buried. He said, I'm visiting here. This isn't my home. I've got a home in Canaan. God has promised me that home. He has prepared that place as my home. And so while this has been great being here, I, I want to make sure I'm buried where my home is because home is where the heart is. And Canaan is where my heart is because that's what God promised me. And it's a reminder for us that this is not our home. It's a reminder that we in our pilgrimage and journey, as Peter says in his first book of of 1 Peter, that he tells us we're aliens and strangers just passing through. And sadly, some of us have not followed the example of Jacob. We continue to dig down our roots deeper and deeper and deeper into this world so that we can enjoy what we believe to be our home for the next 70 years. And God's word says, hey, you're just passing through. Put up a tent, not a house. Don't build a foundation. Get up so you're able to move. And and remember, I'm preparing and promising you a place for eternity. This principle is very close and dear to my heart. 
couple weeks ago I told you about my family lineage, that my great-grandparents on my father's side were from the Middle East. They were from Iraq. They met each other here in Chicago of all places. At the turn of the century, they came and they were merchants and they came to the World's Fair that happened around the 1900. And they visited with one another, being in a city where everybody spoke English and, and everybody looked the same. They somehow came into contact with one another and a relationship was budded and they went back home and because of that relationship, all that they had seen. And, and the amazing thing, at the 1900 World's Fair, right around that time, Thomas Edison was the one who lit up the Chicago skyline with electricity. First time my great-grandparents and most people would ever see light in the midst of darkness. It would change their view of America. They would go back to what would simply be ancient Iraq, right? And they would go and they would arrange the, the, the marriage of my grandparents. And as time went on, they had said America was our home. They had been so changed by what had transpired in America that they said, we're going to do everything in our power to make it our goal in life to get to America. The story is told that my grandmother, the last one to live of those four great-grandparents, was at a party in Baghdad with our family. And the men of the family were doing what the men of the family do, sitting around drinking uh, coffee and tea. And it was a good time in Baghdad at that point. It was about the early 60s. Life was good. There was still the protection of the British government at that point. And the men started saying, as they reclined in their chairs, this is the life. Isn't it good to be in Baghdad? And my Nana Marta, my great-grandmother, frail little woman, they say, and there's multiple witnesses to it, banged on the counter and said, this is not your home. Stop talking about this place as being your home. I have seen our home. Our home is in America. And the more we depend and the more we rely and the more we enjoy this temporal place, the more we will miss out on the blessings of a greater place and a greater home. Nana Marta was the only woman the only woman from that time that would make it to America of her generation. And she would watch all of her family because of her calling. She said, listen, this place is going down the toilet. We need to get to America where there's prosper and families can grow and all of that. My great-grandmother was a prophet. The last 50 years in Iraq have been a toilet. And she knew there was a new home. And she pointed to that home. And the guys in the house said, oh, no, it's great here. Everything's wonderful here. And all hell is broken loose in that country. But she was smart enough and wise enough to say, put your eyes and your focus on a new land. Can I tell you that the men of Jacob's family no doubt thought Egypt was the greatest place in the world to live? They had lived in Canaan, and Canaan was a place that you lived from year to year the struggles of subsistence farming and, and living, whether you're going to make it or not, was always in the cards, if you will. You never knew how good you had it. And then they come to Egypt where they have everything that they need, and they got Joseph who's in high places in, in Egypt. Everything they needed was in abundance for them. And Jacob says, listen, people, God didn't promise us Egypt. He promised us Canaan. And so don't put your feet in too deep here. Don't think this is going to be your home because God has promised a home. Let me bring it to today. I, I know because human experience tells me that when we get up, the elders do, and talk about all in, 
Some of you roll your eyes. Here we go again. The elders are talking about money. Every December we got to hear about being all in. I wonder why they have to do this. Well, it just doesn't make any sense. Well, let me tell you why we do this and be very clear about this. The reason why every year Village Bible Church does an all-in is because we want to remind ourselves as a people, this is not our home. And we get this idea every Christmas that we're going to dig our roots and we're going to buy all this stuff and fill our house with all these good things and it fills our joy. Oh, this is so wonderful. And then we break them by January. Oh, this is so great. It's going to change my life. And it tells us this is our home. This is our home. And your elders are trying to honor God. And try to encourage you, this isn't it. We have a home that God's preparing. And let's live to that. And our goal is to get as many people into that kingdom before we die. And if our giving to this community, our giving to someone outside of ourselves, why do we keep showing change lives? Because it's showing that when you give to Village Bible Church, our goal is not to build nice things or to keep nice things. Our goal is to change lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so let me ask you this morning, are you all into that? Are you sold out for that? Or is this your home? When you look at your credit card statement this Christmas, will it say you're digging roots or are you preparing for another place? Jacob says, this isn't my home. God has promised me something better. And when you sacrifice and give to a thing like All In, you're saying, listen, the temporary's nice, but heaven's far greater. And we look with great anticipation to our place at his home. Jacob dies. A funeral takes place. One, might th- one more thing I might add to this issue of funeral is the example that Jacob plays with regards to the unbelievers in his midst. It's pretty amazing what Egypt does. Jacob dies. Now let's remember that when Jacob meets Pharaoh, what does Joseph tell his family to tell him? You're shepherds. They're going to put you up in Goshen. You're going to hang out there. Why? Because in Egypt, shepherds are a help me out abomination. Good job. Three of you are remembering things. An abomination. I want you to know abomination in the English word is a bad word. Abomination in the Egyptian word is a bad word. It's not nice. You're the worst of the worst. Now why in the world would the worst of the worst, when he dies in a land that is full of paganism, in a land that did not share the theology of of Jacob, that did not share the morals of Jacob, that did not share the priorities of Jacob, that did not share the language of Jacob, why would that nation give two rips about Jacob when he dies? What are we told? When he dies, he's embalmed. When he dies, after the 40-day embalming period, 70 days of mourning were decreed. In Egyptian culture, 75 were given to Pharaoh. This abomination of a shepherd, Jacob, is given 70. And then, halfway in the journey on their funeral procession, they stop for seven days in Canaan. So Jacob gets by the Egyptian army. In the Egyptian court, he gets 77 days of mourning, and their king, their pharaoh, gets 75 to less. Why in the world would they show such reverence? 
Because I believe that Jacob and Joseph's family lived such good lives, such good lives amongst the Egyptians, that they knew something special had been passed. That a great man had died. And a great reminder for you and I that at our funeral, I sure hope at my funeral, number one, I hope you all can make it, but on my funeral, I hope it's not filled with just believers. I hope it's not filled with just the church saying, what a great guy, what a great pastor, but that my community and my work associates and my customers would come. And as you guys are in the, in the procession line to come and, and, and share your thoughts with Amanda and the boys in my, in my casket, that when you're talking, say, how did you know Tim? Were you at Village? No, he, he catered this or that for me. Or I served on the school board with him. Or I sat next to him at the boys' basketball games. He'd say, man, what a man of God. And that my, my unbelieving friends would say, man of God, what are you talking about? normal just like every other guy no I hope my neighbors and my friends and my community and my work associates to say you know what I didn't buy into what he said I didn't have the priorities that he had but that same pastor that you had here what you saw on Sunday you saw Monday Tuesday Wednesday Thursday Friday Saturday and that guy exuded Jesus he exclaimed Jesus Everything he did pointed to Jesus. That my friends in the church and my friends outside in the world would know the same thing about me, that my life is wrapped up around Jesus. Can your work people say that of you? Can your family say that of you? Can your community, can your neighbors say that? Or does your neighbor think you just get really dressed up to go grocery shopping on Sundays? Wow, they're gone in the morning and they get all dressed up just to head to Jewel or Aldi. I don't get it. But some people do that. Do they know that you love Jesus? I would hope that that's the case. I pray that that's the case for me. I don't know if it's completely true yet because I know that there are times I'm ashamed when I shouldn't be. I know there are times where I'm more preoccupied with this what will, than I should be. So when I'm asking those questions, it doesn't mean I've finalized my answer. The proof will be in the pudding. What will they say in my eulogy? That's the whole title of this message, and it's the question I have to ask, and it's the question you as a sensible person have to ask of yourself. Jacob dies, and notice finally there are feelings of grief. Feelings of grief. I would be remiss not to remind you that grief is a natural part. We see in chapter 50, Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. He cries. This is the second time we've seen Joseph cry. The first time when he's so undone uh, by all that he has seen with his brothers. When they still don't know it's Joseph, they think he's just the prime minister. And he simply falls upon his father's face. His father's lifeless body's there, and he falls upon it as some of you have done. As I watched my parents do in the morgue at Mercy Center Hospital with my brother, touching and and embracing the one that was just with him who is now gone. A sweet time where tears fall and all manner of emotions are conjured up. It is altogether good and right for us to do it. Again, it does not say we're unspiritual. In fact, it does say that we are spiritual. That we do grieve, that we have a heart. 
And he's gripped by this. No longer would he ever hear that a boy from his dad. No more conversations with dad. No more of the traditions that dad was the centerpiece of. No more hugs. No more embraces. No more running to dad to ask him advice. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. As you've buried your parents, as you've buried brothers and sisters, as you've maybe even buried children, the pain that comes when you are told they are no longer living, but they are dead. I know many of you are gripped with this issue of grief. This time of Christmas is a tough one. The traditions you practice where they were a key part. As a pastor, i got to tell you, I don't think I've done, nor do I think we as leadership have done all that good of a job in helping you how to face the grief before you. To find hope and peace. And part of it is because we're an American church. In America, America doesn't, doesn't like grief. We push it away. We shut it down. We try to conceal it. I remember when our brother Thomas Vitorma passed away and they had the, the funeral. And, and i got to be honest with you, I was sitting in the back and the pastor that was doing that, man, he made us as pastors look bad. And I told him that. Boy, he, he hit it out of the park. And Jossa was here and she was crying. And she was weeping. And it was uncomfortable because all of us were dying by the loss of the Vitormas with, with uh, uh, Thomas. It was, un, it was unexpected. And the pastor said, let her grieve. This is good. She's crying out to her God. And let her God deal with her tears. In America, we say, quiet down, lady. The enough is enough. You're making us feel uneasy. And we need to recognize grieving is okay. It's good. It's God's outlet for for us to express our love for the ones we've lost. Grief is a reminder of a couple things. Grief is a reminder, number one, that should compel us to do all that we can while our family is living to spend as much time and expel as much energy in our relationship with them. So you're coming to your family celebration this Christmas. Let me tell you what you should not do as a Christ follower. You should not sit in a room with the closest of family members looking at the TV and watching football. No word being said. My children have a limited amount of time with their grandparents. They don't need to be playing video games. Clash of Clans can wait. Snapchat, Instagram, all that can wait unless you're taking a picture of your grandpa. Spend time with them. Grandpas and grandmas, gather your family around and talk about the good old days. Talk about what you did as a family. Tell your children how you courted one another. Talk about what it was like to be a teenager. Talk about what it was like to be an early married individual. Share those jewels with your children and your grandchildren. Love on them. Ask them, what's God doing in your life? What are you learning at church? What are you learning at school? Make them talk to you. Don't fall prey to this idea. And again, I'm not speaking as one who's perfect. I'm speaking as one who is utterly convicted by what I'm preaching to you right now. We don't have a lot of time. And we need to share it and spend it with quality. Number three, grief should remind us that we should be sharing the gospel to those who are closest to us especially. 
Because what good is it to live 70 years in a close familial relationship only never to have talked to people about Jesus Christ and the place he has in our lives? I get it. I got family members that say, I don't want to talk about it. And you got to figure out, as the book of 1 Peter says, to do so with gentleness and respect. And pray for opportunities. I'm amazed that when I pray for opportunities, the opportunities that come. And we need to share it because what good is it to spend 70 years on this earth only to be divided by the great chasm that holds heaven and hell? Death and dying is going to happen. Are you ready? And what will they say on that day about you and the life you've lived? Remember, point two and three are short, so let's get to it. In the times of death and dying, we also see that blessings can be bestowed. I don't have time to get into all of what happens in chapter 49, but I want to draw four applications from it. In chapter 49, we see Jacob gathers his family before he dies, and he brings his children together, and he speaks to them. In Middle Eastern times, we call this a blessing. It's still true today in my Middle Eastern family. At moments in the life of a family, blessings are given. This is not true in America. We don't talk about that. We high-five or fist bump, and we say that's a blessing. That's not a blessing. That's keeping germs away from you. And Jacob gathers his family together, and he blesses them. And I want you to see the correlation between Jacob's blessing and our role as parents and how we parent. Because what you see in the blessing is a microcosm of what we should be doing as parents and grandparents with the next generation. Number one, a blessing was an acknowledgement of who was in the family. In chapter 49, we see listed, how many names do you think? How many sons did Jacob have? Help me out, people. Twelve. Let's say that loud. How many sons did he have? Twelve. How many names are listed in the group? Twelve. Not 11, not 10, not the handful that were good sons. All of them. And it's an acknowledgement and a reminder no matter your kids are good, bad, or ugly. Whether your kids are believers or unbelievers. Whether your kids have rebelled against you or they've been obedient all the days of their life. No matter who they are, they're your children and their family. Don't ever forget that. Jacob had his, some of his sons do some horrific things. And at the time of his death, he says, gather not my good sons, not my smart sons, not my successful sons, gather my 12 sons unto me. They're a part of this family. And the 12 gather. And he speaks to every one of them. Each of them have a place. And we need to tell our children that. As a brother, with my older brother, we used to tell my youngest brother that he was found on the side of the road after the circus had left town. And we just took him in. We felt sorry for him. Now we laugh and we say, that's funny, old, older brother doing that to a younger brother. But we do that as a family, right? We start thinking that one child is more connected to us. Maybe they like more of the same things, and we acknowledge their part in the family, but not the other one. And we do so in subtle ways, because we spend time with one and not the other. Don't fall prey to Jacob as a young man. Follow his, his lead as an older man. There's an acknowledgement of who's in the family. Number two, there's an affirmation. There, I'm sorry, before affirmation, there's an accountability for sinful 
sinful uh, actions. In verses 3 through 7, three sons, Ruben, Simeon, and Levi, or as the gene company says, Levi, are spoken to rather abruptly and very truthfully. And they're told and reminded of some of the sins that they've committed. Now, I don't believe this is a rehashing of their sins to, in essence, beat them back up of it again, but a reminder of their tendency to do things that they need to be held accountable to doing against. So Reuben had allowed his lust and his passion for authority and and place to cause him to sin against one of the wives of his father. Jacob brings it up. Simeon and Levi were the ones who annihilated an entire city filled with people, and they needed to be held accountable. As parents, we are called to hold our children accountable for the wrong things they do, to speak truthfully to it. Listen, in parenting, you don't always give out a trophy. Do you understand that? You sometimes tell your children, you're wrong. You sometimes tell your children that's unbecoming of a Christian. And to put the heft behind it, you bring godly and loving discipline behind it that says, I will not allow you to go to the air of your ways. Holding your children accountable. Number three, affirming the good. In verses 22 through 26, we see it specifically of Joseph, but he does it with some of the other children, where he affirms the good. He encourages. He gives props and accolades. Some of the greatest moments as a 40-year-old man that I've experienced in my life is my father putting his arm around me and saying, I'm proud of you, son. No amount of money will give me that. No amount of accomplishments will give me that. But having my father put his arm around me and say, man, I'm proud of you. It's good to be your dad. I love it. I go to bed rejoicing that you're my son. And I can tell you right now that's exactly how I feel about my three boys. I got no greater job in the world than to be those kids, three, or those three boys' dad. They make me proud. And here's the problem. I don't tell them that enough. I'm too busy. I'm too critical. I'm too caught up in my own stuff. We need to affirm our kids in good. Not all the time. Sometimes we've got to hold them accountable. But we've got to affirm the good. And then the final thing we need to do is we need to announce to them that there's a future. And that focuses in on the, on the blessing of Judah in verses 8 through 12. Judah's fourth on the list. He's middle child syndrome. What about me, right? What about me? Do you even know I exist? I was a middle child. I made sure they knew I existed. And he gets phrases that are better than Joseph. Even though Joseph had done all this incredible stuff, notice the blessing we get a glimpse of. You shall be the object of praise. You shall be victorious. You shall be like a lion, which is king of all creatures. You'll be the ruler of all the ages. You'll receive a tribute of tributes. You'll be the one who wears garments who have been washed clean by a substance that only stains, which is described as blood. And while Jacob was describing Judah, what he's looking forward to and foreshadowing is Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb that was slain. 
And what we need to remind our children is, we need to tell them they're in the family. We need to hold them accountable when they do wrong things. We need to affirm them when they do right things. And over all the times, Deuteronomy tells us whether we stand up, sit down, or we're eating or sleeping or whatever we're doing, that we tell people about Jesus. And that they know that no matter what we do, the good, the bad, and ugly, we have grace and we have mercy because Messiah's coming. And we know on this side of the story, his name is Jesus, who takes away the sins of the world. And takes away the sins of, of mom and dad. And takes away the sins of daughter and sons. And grandsons and granddaughters. And go and on and on and on. Make sure that your parenting is centered on the story of Jesus. Let me share this because I know time is short. But let me share it because it's important to me and you have to listen. Um, when I was 18 years of age, I shared this in our small group. And I'll share it with you. The first service didn't get it. So let me share it with you. My, my years from 14 to 18 were turbulent years. If you were to ask my mom and dad in that moment during that time they were living, this will be solace for some of you who are dealing with some difficult kids, my parents would say, we're not sure if he'll ever get married. We're not sure if he'll ever hold a job. We're not sure he'll have the social skills to be able to make it as an adult. And my parents were not exaggerating. They had no confidence that I was going to make it as an adult. And I remember when I graduated, by the way, barely graduated high school, we had a, a graduation party. We invited, some of you were there, some of you are old enough to remember my graduation party. And that graduation party, we had one of the most severe storms I can ever remember, June storm. We had a tent up, the tent was annihilated, everything was a mess. Every picture was a picture of just utter chaos, apropos for a Timbidal kind of party. Chaos. I was disappointed because people, of course, didn't show up. I was disappointed that the, the storm had destroyed my party. And I pretty much said, you know what, this is my way of life. This is what my life has been, one big chaotic mess that I'm not going to get out of. And my father, at the end of that, said, Tim, come outside, come outside. And what had happened, as most storms do here in Illinois, the storm had passed to the east. And in the west, you saw the most beautiful, not one, but two sets of rainbows. And my dad brought me out, and he put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, listen, what you've just seen during the time of your party is a wonderful microcosm of what your life has been like. It's been a mess. Talk about being held accountable. I felt really small. Wow, Dad. Really, it's been that bad? It's been a storm. One rocky thunder and lightning upon another. But then he took me and turned me and showed me the rainbows, and he said, listen, I know a lot of it's because you live in the shadow of your older dead brother. But I want you to know Chris got a single rainbow. You got a double. And God's going to do great things through you. And if you're faithful and you're obedient and you walk with him every step of the way, God will be faithful to get you through the storms of life so you can see the rainbow. Let me tell you something very clearly. At 40 years of age, I have seen the double rainbow. My heart is completely filled God has blessed me with a wonderful wife and three wonderful kids. God has blessed me not only with one job, but two. I could question the blessing sometimes. He's given me the opportunity to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. I am a fulfilled man because God has blessed me. And he spoke through my father to give me the confidence and courage I needed for that. 
And so let me close with this. Some lessons to be learned. This message gets pointed to the dads and grandfathers. Doesn't mean moms and grandmas can't hear it. Doesn't mean kids can't hear it. But dads and grandpas, here's my word for you. Life is short. Live it well. Life is short, live it well. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. And so start living your life in the obedience of Christ and His Word. Do it well. Number two, rough starts don't define you. They don't have to define you. Maybe you had a lousy dad. Maybe you're like, well, Tim, sure is nice you had a great dad. I did have a great dad. But I know that God uses people and sons of not-so-great dads, and God gives uh, not-so-great dads second chances. So understand that how, how you start doesn't define you, but how you finish does. So today is a new day. Today is a new day of grace. His grace and mercy are new every morning. Great is the faithfulness of God. So utilize that. As long as you have breath, you can change the direction of one's life. And number two, or number three, having the right priorities will pay off in the end. Just like investments of your money. You don't see the returns in day one, but as you continue to deposit and deposit and deposit into your wife and into your children and into your grandchildren, when you deposit in the life of believers and unbelievers, a great harvest of righteousness will unfold when you do not grow weary in doing good. So I'm going to ask as we close in prayer, and I know I've gone a little long today, but that's okay. We had nowhere to go. The roads aren't all that great anyway. I want the dad and the grandfathers to stand up for me. I want you to stand up right where you are. If you're a dad or a grandfather, I want you to stand. And I want to tell you that you have a more important job than you would ever know. You've got a job where the people that are around you are looking up to you to be the best dads and grandpas that you can be. To be humble and obedient to the calling of God and to serve and honor Him well by following His Word. And you say, but I didn't do that yesterday. That's okay. Today's a new day. I didn't father like that. Well, be the grandfather that you've been called to be. Make amends for the wrong that have been done in the past. Be a good husband. Be a good father. Be a loving and caring dad and grandpa. So that you can honor God in everything that you do. And here's the reason why I'm glad you're here. And I'm glad that other men are standing up. Because you're not alone. The devil wants you to believe you're alone. The devil wants you to think that you're a mess. The devil wants you to think that you're no good. But God says, I have a purpose and plan for your life. And I want your heart. So give it to him. And God says when you do, he'll bless you. And I bless you. Let me pray for you. Father God, I pray for these men in this room that they would be leaders, that they would lead, uh, Lord, from a servant's heart, that they would honor you above all else, that they would strive to know you above all else, that they would uh, seek to do your will above all else. And that, Lord, as they're striving and seeking and serving you, that you would bless them beyond measure. That, Lord, when they have questions or they lack wisdom, that you would give generously to them without finding faults. That when they stumble, Lord, you would extend your mercy and grace and forgiveness and pick them back up.
Lord, I pray that you would bless their homes, you would bless their marriages, you would bless their children and their children's children to the fourth and fifth generation, that their obedience, Lord, would lead to many in their family coming to the knowledge of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So empower called by your Spirit, fill them with that Spirit so that they may do the job you've called them to. Lord, I pray their wives will come around them and love on them and minister to them and honor and respect them even at times when they may be dishonorable. And Lord, I pray that when their children speak of them when they're long gone, they will speak of a man who walked deeply with his God. Lord, I thank you for these men because they impact the church we have. And we are a good church because we have good men, Lord. And let us continue to equip men for the days to come so that the families and the generations that will come will be called blessed. Lord, thank you again for this time. We thank you for your word, and we ask that we would live in light of it. This, all these things we pray in your son's precious name and all God's people said, amen.